Welcome to the Hybrid Theory Podcast, where we continue to discuss everything in relation to youth sports, youth athletes, youth development in totality, and uncover the truths, the myths, the opinions, and theories pertaining to this industry. Today, we're going to talk about the industry in itself. Before we can start underlying how to fix things, it's important to assess exactly what is the industry, what has it become, and go back through a little bit of history, education. Um, this is something that I love doing, deep diving into different things. And I'm sure all of us, to some degree, love watching uh, documentaries, um, you know, true crime, all that kind of stuff or what have you. This is basically what I love doing, just going back and seeing how the evolution of athletes has come to be, sports, Olympians, et cetera, et cetera, um, especially because in order for you to have some semblance of where we need to go, you have to know where you come from. Um, and I'm very much a proponent of that. So way that I like to start off today, um, because especially for those of you who have listened to me through Instagram and have found me through Instagram, um, and those of you who have found me through this podcast and eventually will find me through this podcast, potentially at a later date, um, you may not have a bit of backstory, a background pertaining to the conversations that we've been having through social media. So it's important to bring that full circle so that everyone is essentially caught up and everyone is along the same wavelength and path. Um, the youth industry is a billion dollar industry. <clears throat> now at the time, um, and this is, I'm going to go through one or two articles um, at the time of uh, these articles were published. Um, the youth industry was about a $15 million industry. And to kind of put that a little bit into perspective, um, <laughs> the NFL is uh, estimated to be worth $15 billion. The NFL. I want you to let that sit for a little bit. The NFL, the National Football League, is roughly estimated to be worth $15 million. Now, at the time, the youth industry, and this was around the pandemic period of time, was estimated to be worth the same exact amount. It has now increased to $19 billion, the youth industry, youth sports industry, youth performance industry, whatever it may be. It is estimated, and we'll go through this via the... Uh, the articles that we intend to read. Um, it's estimated that by the year 2026, it is currently 2023. By the year 2026, it's estimated that youth sports will be valued at $77.6 billion globally. $77.6 billion. So that should give you a little bit of perspective as to what is essentially getting ready to happen to your lives and the coming generation, which is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about discussing these particular topics. Because if this is the upwards trajectory of where youth sports is heading, getting ready to be, we're not prepared. We're not prepared. Our kids aren't prepared. Uh, parents were not prepared. Um, our bodies aren't prepared. And that's one of the most important things that I continue to emphasize and talk about. We are not actively training the way that we should be in order to prepare for this increase. Because what has to happen, our kids are already playing 
10 to 12 month long seasons. Our kids are already not strength training. Our kids are already specializing simply in one sport. You're traveling around throughout the entirety of the year. So how can you possibly spend more money? In previous conversations through social media, we've estimated, especially for soccer, that uh, parents will roughly spend ten to $20,000 per kid. So if you are a new parent and you're listening to this, starting from the age of nine to, uh, I would say about nine to 11 years old, depending on what travel team, what club team that you enter into, uh, your team dues will likely be $2,000 plus. And a lot of instances, especially by the time you hit 13, between 13 and 18, a lot of your team dues are closer towards the four slash $5,000 range. And for those of you who are in like Midwest areas and different things like that, your market isn't as big as metropolitan areas. We're talking about California. We're talking about Texas. We're talking about New York. We're talking about Florida. We're talking about uh, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia areas. Um, so these big metropolitan areas are likely where you're going to see the $5,000 team fees, the $4,000 team fees. Um, in smaller markets, it's going to be less costly, but the smaller markets are trying to catch up with the bigger markets, which means that the cost will then eventually go up. Um, as they push that up, the metropolitan areas are pushing their prices up and so on and so forth. So without further ado, let's get into this uh, first article, which is entitled Youth Sports Needs a Reset. Child athletes are pushed to professionalize too early. COVID-19 forced the multi-billion dollar youth sports industry to be put on hold. Let's take advantage of this time to look at it with fresh eyes. This particular article, um, it had two contributors, uh, Christopher, uh, Christopher Bjork and William Holmes. Um, and hopefully I'm, I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but it was published March 24th of 2021. Um, today we are in 2023 so this was two years ago that we were asking for a reset but this is right after the pandemic period so let's dive back into the article the article states the outbreak of COVID-19 thrust the world of youth sports into disarray forced to put most activities on hold sports leagues around the country have struggled to resume operating in a way that protects the safety of participants Athletes of all ages were forced to reduce the amount of time they spend playing sports or to put those activities on hold indefinitely. This has exacerbated feelings of boredom, stress, anxiety, and frustration among children of all ages. Although the pandemic has disrupted the lives of young athletes, it has also created an unexpected opportunity to look at youth athletes with fresh eyes and to make some much-needed changes that might not otherwise have been possible. Over the past five years, we have been studying developments in the youth sports industry and their impact on youth athletes and their families. The rapid expansion of the industry has intensified the pressure that parents feel to increase the time, money, and energy they invest in their children's athletic careers. The youth sports industry increased by 55% from 2017 to, 27, uh, to, to 2010, or from 2010 to 2017, apologies, and now constitutes a $19 billion market. One research organization that focuses on youth sports projects, that this total will climb to $77.6 billion by 2026. Once again, I'll repeat that. The youth sports industry increased by 55% from 2010 
to 2017. So you can imagine from 2017 till 2023, which is roughly around the same amount of time, how much it has increased. So 2021, we're a $19 billion market, which means that we're likely valued at about $21 billion currently, ideally speaking. Continuing the article, sports have long been deeply embedded in youth culture. However, the form and intensity of kids' connection with sports have shifted in some troubling ways over the past 20 years. The article reads with the heading of a child athlete's race to the top. Article continues, the youth sports industry has evolved into a complex system with multiple layers and shifting expectations. This expansion and the commercialization of youth sports has made parenting even more confounding. In addition to negotiating their personal relationships, parents are challenged to navigate what has become a profit-driven business enterprise that treats their children as high-value customers. I'll repeat that last line. In addition to negotiating their personal relationships, parents are challenged to navigate what has become a profit-driven business enterprise that treats their children as high-value customers. The article continues, our research indicates that participating in community-based sports is no longer considered adequate in the eyes of many athletes. Rather than play on the town baseball or in the local recreational soccer league, youth athletes are opting to attach themselves to clubs that play year-round. These organizations, which are generally lumped together under the umbrella term travel team, are more, rigor or more rigorous than local sports programs. They are now available for almost every sport that might interest a child. Playing for an elite academy showcase or regional team has become the new marker of status for competitive athletes and their parents. I'll repeat that last line. Playing for an elite, in quotations, academy, showcase, or regional team has become the new marker of status for competitive athletes and their parents. The article continues. As travel teams have become more commonplace, adults with athletic ambitions for their children often feel pressure to secure competitive advantages for them. This leads them to sign their children up for private coaching sessions, for college showcase tournaments, hours from their homes, and for membership with marketing companies that promise to attract the attention of college coaches. And the longer a child plays competitive sports, the stronger the push to go all in becomes. We encountered very few parents who chose to reduce the intensity of their children's sports activities over time. When the stakes increase, so too did the size of the family's investments. The race at the top, it's, it sometimes seems, has no end point until, as is the case with the vast majority of young athletes, their playing days end, often with much disappointment. Surely many young athletes are benefiting from the professionalized coaching, higher levels of competition, and social bonds that travel sports often provides. But the intensification of the youth sports industry has also produced some troubling side effects. Pushing children to specialize in a single sport can have detrimental effects on their physical and, physio and psychological health. The shift from community-based leagues to travel teams has augmented pressure to begin high-intensity training at young ages. Such pressure can interfere with an athlete's ability to sleep, eat, and derive satisfaction from playing sports. 
Research also indicates that the expansion of travel sports has also led to more injuries among developing young athletes. I'll repeat that line. Research also indicates that the expansion of travel sports has also led to more injuries among developing young athletes. Those who play on elite club teams, elite in quotations, club teams are significantly more likely to suffer from overuse injuries than their peers who play for community-based teams. Yet this evidence tends to have minimal impact on parents eager to advance their children's athletic careers. Let's breathe for a second. Allow you to process that. Because this is conversations that I continue to have with a lot of clients, with a lot of parents. Um, and sometimes when you see it in alternate places or you hear it in alternate places, it starts to become a reality. The reality for a lot of you, as is stated within the article, is that you've gotten so far in it, you haven't been able to take a step out and see it. So this is one of the reasons why I want you to sit back and process this for a second. Give yourself a second. Cool, let's proceed. The article continues with the heading, Parents Take a Pause. How ironic. The article continues, in talking with parents, we found that they tend to make decisions about their children's athletic careers without carefully thinking through the consequences. They sign their children up for travel teams because that is what their children's friends seem to be doing, regardless of the long-term goals they have for their sons and daughters. And parents' longer-term thinking about their child's future subsequently develops in dialogue with other travel team parents. In this context, parents who never saw themselves as sports parents often find themselves into deeply engaged advocates, fans, and promoters of their child's budding sports careers. The current pause in sports activity, and this continues into uh, the COVID uh, period, the current pause in sports activity impelled by COVID-19 offers the opportunity to think carefully about how the youth sports industry can be reconfigured to better meet the needs of developing athletes. As communities prepare to return to playing, now is the time to have the hard conversations about how we want youth sports programs to serve our children and our communities. So we go back, this is again back in 2021. So in 2021, if you're listening to this, you're saying, darn it, that was the time to do it. And that does not necessarily equate that that was exactly the time to do it. There was a multiple, there's still time to do it. Right now you can do it. Right now you can help. Right now you can take this information, process it, and, and decide to change it new. But that was a perfect opportunity. And I've spoken about it before, about how much your children developed, right, from a skills acquisition standpoint, from a knowledge standpoint, from uh, having to do alternate of just relying on these sports and trying to help all of you understand that these quote unquote elite teams are not truly elite. They're not providing you with what you need. They're just providing you with a market. They're providing you with a brand. They're telling you, hey, we have this team. We have this tournament going. Come here and we guarantee you'll get something. But the reality of it is when you have over thousand kids playing, not all of them are going to get picked up. And then if 
half of those thousand kids or 75% of those thousand kids never even hit the field and never even get on the court. You're just paying money. So you're just contributing towards the business and it's boom. And that's all it comes down to. With that being said, where did all of this derive from? Where did all of this come from? Um, and most importantly, how can we effectively change it? I hear a lot of parents ask me, well, what can we do to change it? What should we do to change it? The article continues, two paragraphs of what could potentially, what they felt could potentially be done post-pandemic period. So let's go through that and then I'll give you my opinions on what I feel needs to change uh, within youth sports, whether it's in agreements or whether it's comparative to whatever it is that they've demonstrated needs to happen. Organizing games, um, or the article reads, organizing games and tournaments locally could provide children with a chance to resume athletic activities and reduce their exposure to getting the coronavirus. Centering sports in neighborhood would also eliminate the need to house families in team hotels for days, another safe alternative to past practices. Ideally, this could reestablish the foundations of community-based sports that have fallen out of favor over the past two decades. Restructuring sports leagues in this way from the ground up would reduce pressure on parents to sign their children up for activities that are not in their best interests. Easing back into youth sports might produce a healthier, more developmentally appropriate sports culture. It could also strengthen connections between families and their surrounding communities. Adjusting behavior at the individual, as well as the organizational levels, could provide much-needed balance in the lives of developing athletes. <laughs> So I definitely agree with organizing games and tournaments locally. Um, I believe that the flux of the, the way that they've constructed a lot of your divisions and whatever, it's very, very money driven. And it's very, very obvious that it's money driven. Um, if we take an example from in soccer, ECNL, you have the, I want to say North Atlantic the North Atlantic and Mid-Atlantic regions. Now, in the Mid-Atlantic regions, you have, for those of you who don't know how close of proximity a lot of this stuff is, but you have Maryland, D.C., Virginia, all within like a 30 to 45, a 45-minute radius. Um, it's very close. Within the Mid-Atlantic, and I could be getting this wrong, um, within the Mid-Atlantic region, you have about three or four Virginia teams. You've got like Alexandria, you've got uh, Virginia Union, you have uh, Virginia Developmental Academy, Arlington, um, and I want to say one or two more Virginia teams that are just slightly further out. So it would be like from Maryland to that particular place. It's like a hour-long drive. Now, with North Atlantic, you have um, Bethesda, I want to say pipeline, um, which is closer towards Baltimore. So from G Virginia to pipeline, that would probably be about an hour distance. Um, and then you have Maryland United. Now, here's the, the really just makes absolutely no sense. If I have teams that are all within about an hour radius together. So I've got VA Union, Alexandria, VDA. Arlington, or whatever other Virginia team that was out there. So that's five. Um, Maryland United, Bethesda, Pipeline. That's eight teams. 
I can create a conference with with those eight teams. And that's nobody would ever within those games, nobody would ever have to get a hotel room for any of the games throughout the entire season. And majority of those teams, especially from U13 on, um, because that's that's the way that the setup is. Majority of those teams um, would never have to get a hotel. Um, if you wanted to play back-to-back games, you honestly could. Um, and in addition to that, a lot of those conferences are playing 22 games. So you're all playing 22 semi games locally. So you don't have to purchase a flight. You don't got to stay overnight. You don't have to pay hotel fees or whatever. So that significantly reduces if you're spending $10,000 plus per year, that significantly reduces. Um, I want to say I estimated um, for all the travel and stuff, it was like 3000 plus 3000 plus dollars with like hotels and stuff. Right. Um, so it was about 3000, 3500 $3,500 or something like that plus. And it's different for each family, right? But that gives you an idea of how we could restructure it to where everyone is local. Now, what they have it set up as in the mid-Atlantic, you got the Virginia teams playing against teams in North Carolina and uh, where, where was it? North Carolina and not Tennessee. Um, but it was like two, two, two to three hours away. Um for the North Atlantic or what have you, you had the Maryland, the the three Maryland teams playing teams out in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, which is crazy. It's crazy. And you had about four New Jersey teams, three Pennsylvania teams. You could literally put them all together. Why is Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York not all within the same bracket did in certain parts of Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania is huge. But certain parts of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, New Jersey, and New York, that's all within an hour radius. Hour and a half, at least. So this goes to let you know that a lot of the stuff that they do is money-driven, right? Competition-driven. Um, one of the personal things that I believe needs to happen as well is people need to stop ducking each other. And here's what I mean by this. Start playing, and, and clubs have fear of this. If they play against a team that's local to them and they lose, right? They lose the, and, and parents contribute towards this too. Okay, well, we lost to so-and-so, so they must be a better team. Let's switch over there. And that creates this whole chain of cycle. Okay, well, this year we're going to switch over to that team because that team's stronger. And then, oh, well, this year we're going to switch over to this team because that team's stronger. And there's never steady competition. Nobody just stays and says, all right, well, they beat us. We got 22 games. We're going to see them two or three times per year. Let's build a team. Let's build a rivalry. Let's, we want to beat this team. We don't like this team. Let's beat this team. Instead of like, just jumping teams, team hopping. Now, granted, in some situations, I'm an advocate for team hopping, especially if you're not getting any game time and the coaching profile or personality does not fit your child. That is very important. Um, but just hopping every single year just for the sake of it, I am not an advocate for that. Um, but I believe that these local teams need to encourage wanting to play local teams and saying, look, we're going to be 
the best competitive team. And we're going to continue to instill within our market, within our team environment or our club environment, that we are the best in the area. And consequently, other teams need to say, you're not the best in the area. We're going to continue to put a better model in place so we can compete against you instead of saying, ah, we don't want to play that team. Because parents, they continue to advertise to you and then parents fall for this trap of, well, oh yeah, we want to go out to San Diego and play the teams out in San Diego. For what? We want to go to Florida and play those teams. Oh, I heard those teams are excellent. Let's play the, play the teams in your area. The best, I, my personal opinion is if you can't play, if you can't beat the teams in your area, right? You can't consider yourself the best. Why do you want to play the best over in somebody else's area? You haven't even proven your worth in your own area. So I believe that local competition, local tournaments needs to be more prevalent. Um, and I'll continue to go into, especially like the ECNL structure and things like that. But again, overall, we're talking about the entire youth sports industry. Um, in addition to that, uh, I believe uh, another change that needs to happen is the way that we think of elite, right? The way that we think of elite sports, the way that we think of elite teams. Um, I think re-education needs to happen. I think a better structure needs to happen um, in terms of how we develop players, a better timeline. We're talking about year-round sports now. There has to be some time off because let's just not even consider your children, right? Let's take into the account the coaches, what time do the coaches have to re-educate themselves? What time do the coaches have to actually sit down and format a plan or program and think about a player's development and say, okay, this is the best the best pathway that I believe that I could assist, you know, for your child? What time, what time do they have to do that? Even doctors have to take continuing education courses. Even even dentists have to, you know, renew licensure and go through courses or what have you. Same thing with personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches. Where is that for our coaches? Where is that implementation? Where is that, okay, well, I'm going away for this week for a seminar. And, you know, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to learn from X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to come back with new ideas and a new approach and a new whatever. What time do the organizations in itself have to take their coaches out on the field and say, this was a problem for us last year. We're going to get better at this. Half of you were late. So we're going to practice being here on time. Um, half of you didn't have the cones set up in a proper way. We're going to make sure that they're set up. Let's go over a new curriculum. This is what we're instilling. This is what we want to implement for this particular age group. We want them passing more. We want more off the ball movement. Here's how we go about doing things. I've had coaches reach out to me who are like, you know, I've never had that. I'm like, how is that possible? So you're going in every year just off the cuff, off the fly. So what is the technical director there for? What is the club director there for? If they're not keeping you honest, with your approach. Even chefs have to be micromanaged. Oh no, that was, you know, that wasn't seared properly. Refry, like that has to happen. So where is that happening for us? Now, all this stuff is nice, but I want to go back into some more articles. Um, what what has happened to youth sports? How did we how do we get here? Um, and I think a lot of people 
miss that as well because they've you it, it just transitioned really quickly and i know it transitioned really quickly for me because i don't remember this being the case 10 years ago when i was playing youth right i would say 12 13 years ago so i don't remember it being like this and so much has happened and changed dramatically especially with the inclusion of social media youtube all that kind of stuff a lot has changed a lot and I don't believe that we've caught uh, we've caught up with the change. We haven't adapted with the change. It's just like, okay, this is here. This is what they're saying now. So we have to do this. So let's just do this. So let's go back with a little bit of history. I found another article. I told you I love doing stuff like this. Article reads, heading, what has happened to you sports? Article states in quotations, um, a $19.2 billion market in the U.S. means the youth sports market rivals the size of the $15 billion NFL, says a December 2019 report from Dublin's Globe Newswire. Totaling $24.9 billion at that point, worldwide youth sports markets are expected to reach $77.6 billion by 2026, end quote. Youth sports used to mean playtime. How did it become about money? Let's read on look at history and socioeconomic factors influencing the commercialization of youth sports. The heading reads, playing as a priority. The article continues, at the age of 11, Julia explained to a New York Times writer why she was out skiing with her classmates. I like being, a, it, it says, I like being outside and active with my friends, she said, expressing in nine words why generations of children have gone out to play. The Aspen Institute's 2019 State of Play report takes a longer-term approach. Kids who are physically active are one-tenth as likely to be obese, it tells us. They're more likely to go on to college and less likely to suffer chronic diseases, end quote. In an article for the independent news source Crosscut, one of the report's authors went on to note, play improves memory and executive functioning, increases capacity to manage emotions and regulate anxiety boosts academic achievement and literacy, and improves social skills. Physical activity is a cornerstone of healthy whole child development, end quote. The heading reads, the development of youth sports in the United States. From personal enjoyment to long-term physical and emotional health, we have many convincing reasons to prioritize physical activity for kids, but we have not always done so through organized team sports. Writing for The Atlantic, author Hillary Levi Friedman gave this chronology and context. From free time to competition, the heading says. With the implementation of mandatory schooling in the U.S. starting with Massachusetts in 1852 and ending with Mississippi in 1917, children gained clearly delineated school time and free time. Sports leagues grew as a way to fill the latter. Urban reformers saw them as a means to keep underprivileged boys off the street and out of trouble, and newly established parks and playgrounds provided viable space. As adults didn't much trust their boys to play without supervision, league play became soon became organized sport. It was respected as a way to teach cooperation, hard work, and respect for authority as held as American values. In 1903, New York City's Public School Athletic League for Boys was established in formal contests between children organized by adults emerged as a way to keep the boys coming back to activities, clubs, and school. Formal competition ensured the boys' continued participation since they wanted to defend their team's record and honor. 
competitive athletic leagues grew across the country through the 1920s. The heading reads, the growth of of fee-based play. Those leagues suffered financially during the Great Depression, and fee-based groups, such as the YMCA, sought to fill the void. Their new pay-to-play model excluded children whose families couldn't afford the fees. Pay-to-play. I know that was a trigger for some of you to read because this is the conversation that we continue to talk about. Here is where pay-to-play originated. Fun fact. The same moment in history saw the founding of athletic organizations such as Pop Warner Football established in 1929 that would formally institute national competitive tournaments for young kids for a price. Many physical education professionals called the organizational focus on competition harmful, putting too much emphasis on athletic talent at too young an age. As a result, most organized competition left the public's elementary school system. Kids continued to need play, of course, and Little League and similar fee-based competitive organizations grew and thrived for decades. As they succeeded, it became harder to sustain free sport programs. So this goes all the way back towards the 1920s slash 30s, where essentially this problem derived. Now, where did the desire for you innately, and I don't think a lot of you realize that you do this innately, but where did the desire to play sport for the purpose of securing opportunities in college come from? Well, the article goes into that as well. Their heading reads, parental involvement and the drive toward college. In the 1960s, the self-esteem movement began to take hold in schools with its focus on building confidence and talent without negativity or comparison between children. Its reach didn't extend to outside activities, and parents increasingly wanted more competitive opportunities for their children and were willing to pay for it. By this time, it was an accepted cultural norm for parents and kids to spend time together at sports practices for Little League, Bitty Basketball, and Pee Wee Hockey, among others. The 1960s 60s also gave rise to growing competition over college admissions. Campuses were bursting with baby boom generation students. Top schools couldn't meet the demand, which meant that not all students would get into the colleges they preferred or expected to attend. As co-education and the GI Bill of Rights democratized the applicant pool, increasingly anxious parents focused on athletics as a means by which their kids could gain admission to quality universities. As tuitions became prohibitive, colleges and universities found that robust athletic programs can build financial gaps and build tremendous strength. Regarding football programs, a 2016 national public radio commentary said they can earn more than $100 million a year for their schools, much of that from TV revenue. A successful program can also build community, attract students and donations. Some schools have even leveraged their football income to become academic powerhouses. The youth of sport as a path toward higher education then isn't as much about admission anymore as it is about tuition. I'll read that line again. The use of sport as a path toward higher education then isn't as much about admission anymore as it is about tuition. According to the New York Times, there may be no single factor driving the professionalization of youth sports more than the dream of free college. I'll read that again. 
According to the New York Times, there may be no single factor driving the professionalization of youth sports more than the dream of free college. With the cost of higher education skyrocketing and the athletic department's budget, budget swelling, NCAA schools now hand out $3 billion in scholarships a year. Now, before we progress any further, I want you to think about that. NCAA schools hand out $3 billion in scholarships a year. The estimated total value of youth sports is roughly around, uh, globally, um, they said it in the article at the very top, and this was posted back in December, um, $24.9 billion. Now, in the United States, it's about if we do the math for that, $3 billion are being offered out scholarships for all athletics. That means that maybe a fifth of your kids, fifth or sixth of your kids, maybe even a seventh seventh or eighth of your kids will actually get a college scholarship right now seventh or eighth of your kids nationally will get a scholarship that means one so if we have a team a basketball team of 10 players or even let's say eight let's say five starters three bank players that means that one of them will get a scholarship for a soccer team, that means we do a team of 11, five subs. That's two out of 16. That's a crazy number. But as the article states, there may be no single factor driving the professionalization of youth sports more than the dream of free college. So everyone is believing that their kid will get this free college when the statistics state that it is highly unlikely that your kid will be one of them. But that's what's driving it. The article continues. The heading states, you sport today. Nationwide, the New York Times reports kids of all skill levels and virtually every team sport are getting swept up by a youth sports economy that increasingly resembles the pros at increasingly early ages. Now, for any of you who follow me on social media, I have stated this before, that we are essentially training these kids as if they're pros and they haven't even developed to the capacity of the output of a pro. The article continues, local leagues have been nudged aside by private club teams, a loosely governed constellation that includes everything from development academies affiliated with professional sports franchises to regional squads run by moonlighting coaches with little experience. The most competitive teams vie for talent and travel to national tournaments. Others are elite in name only, siphoning expensive participation fees from parents of kids with little hope of making the high school varsity let alone the pros. Parents' cause continues to grow. 
At the high end, the article continues, families can spend more than 10% of their income on registration fees, travel, camps, and equipment. A dad from upstate New York spent $20,000 in one year for his daughter's volleyball club team participation and drove the two and a half hour round trip for practice up to four nights a week. One Springfield, I believe this is Missouri mom, uh, regularly drove seven hours round trip for her 10 and 11 year old son's travel basketball practice. A family from Ottawa sent their 13-year-old to New Jersey for a year to increase his ice time on the travel hockey circuit. A sponsor paid the teens $25,000 private school tuition. NFL veteran says, I've seen parents spend a couple of hundred thousand pursuing a college scholarship. They could have set it aside for college. Think about that. That same money that you are spending now, you could have that you are spending now in the hopes that eventually you will recoup from college, you could have spent it on college. You could have saved every dime with the guarantee that your child would be able to go to college and it was paid for. So from the age of eight to 18, if you, if you took all of that money and you just put it into a savings, by the time they got to 18 years old, they would be guaranteed a college education. The article heading continues, better outcomes. As the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, reminds us, keeping fit is essential for childhood development and overall longevity. Regular physical activity can help children and adolescents improve cardiorespiratory fitness, build strong bones and muscles, control weight, reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression, and reduce the risk of developing health conditions such as heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, osteoporosis, and obesity. We need to create and sustain constructive ways to integrate sports into kids' lives. Although the current costs of youth sports in this country may not be sustainable, other successful approaches are proving to be so. Imagine a society, says a 2019 New York Times article, in which 93% of children grow up playing organized sports. Where costs are low, the economic barriers to entry few. Travel teams aren't formed into the teen, until the teenage years, and where adults don't start sorting the weak from the strong until children have grown into their bodies and interests. Then the most promising talents become the most competitive athletes in the world on a per capita basis. This is Norway. Population, 5.3 million, which won 39 medals in the 2018 Winter Olympics, more than any other country in the history of the Winter Games. Unique worldwide, Norway's children's rights in sports is an eight-page declaration that underpins its whole sports ecosystem. It was introduced in 1987 and updated in 2007 by the Norwegian Olympic and Paralympic Committee and Confederation of Sports, placing a high value on the voices of youth it describes the type of experience that every child in the country must be provided, from safe training environments to activities that facilitate friendships. Competition is promoted, but not at the expense of development and the Norwegian vision, joy of sport for all. A few of the principles in the declaration state, children must be granted opportunities to participate in planning and, ex and execution of their own sport activities. They may decide for themselves how much they would like to train and can even opt out of games if they want to practice. 
no national championships before age 13, no regional championships or publication of game scores or rankings before age 11. If a federation or club violates the rules, it may lose access to government grants generated from proceeds of sports betting and other gambling to help build facilities and fund programming. We believe the motivation of children in sport is much more important than that of the parent or coach, said Inge Anderson former secretary general of the Norwegian Confederation. It's impossible to say at eight or 10 or 12, who's going to be talented in school or sport. That takes another 10 years. Our priority is the child becoming self-reflective about their bodies and their minds. I'll let that simmer for a little bit. So we've discussed the fact. Fact is... Youth sports is a billion-dollar industry. Fact is, youth sports needs to change. Fact is, and we've gone over where all of this come from, or all of this comes from. The history, we've just gone through it. Now, the opinion of most, and I wouldn't even say most, I would say that it's actually a smaller margin, is that it needs to stay exactly where it is. We're not doing enough. We need to do more. We need to be highly competitive. We need to do more, 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 more. Because they're kids. They're not doing enough. They can handle it. Research demonstrates otherwise. Research is saying that we're breaking our kids down. There's article after article stating how damaged youth sports is. And then it started from the 1930s. So it's almost been a hundred years of evolution. And from 2010, we've saw an over a 55% increase all within the span of 13 years, which is crazy. And we're generated to basically increase by $50 billion within the next three years, which is additionally even more crazy. So when you're wondering what has happened, why has it happened, what went wrong, we've just gone over the history. But additionally, in present time, we've developed, we've allowed uh, the, the clubs and the organizations to pigeonhole us, to basically say, we control your kid's narrative. We control your kid's story. We control what happens to them. If they don't come to us, they are guaranteed not to get a scholarship. They're not going to college. But we've just assessed that if you were to literally take that same amount of money and save it, they were guaranteed to go to college. So then the question is, what are we truly doing this for? Because if we have the avenue to be able to provide college guaranteed for our children what then are we doing this for okay well they love the sport how many of our kids are we seeing lacking motivation how many kids from a collegiate perspective are we seeing who are finally breaking down after having to essentially be strong for years because this is something that they wanted to do and they didn't even realize that something was wrong we just had the goalkeeper from stanford last year or the year prior. We've had plenty more other kids who have not been highlighted within that same regard. 
any of you who have gone to college and played collegiate sports knows how rough it is, especially top tier division one. It's rough. And we're not preparing our children for this. It's only going to get worse. It's getting worse. Your kids are playing 11 to 12 months long with no break, with no rest, with no summer. They can't even get time to go to a water park. Think about that. They don't have time to be outside. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, they're always on their iPad. They're always on a game or whatever. I've got a lot of clients who don't even get time to. In a lot of instances, I'm telling them to take the time, just play Fortnite or play Roblox or whatever the case may be, because they don't have time to do anything else. And consequently as well, nobody's outside. You don't see kids outside in a lot of instances. Now, there are a lot of different places that still maintain that semblance of frequency and that lifestyle. And I applaud you if you do that. I put a post, uh, a few posts up just about the inability to be children anymore. We put a competitive emphasis at nine years old. Why are nine years old traveling three, four hours to play a game? Just play who you're playing right here. Oh, well, we want better competition. What dictates better competition? Because I'm telling you, these games are not that great. The athleticism has increased. The talent has increased. But the understanding of the game, it has not evolved. The fundamentals of the game has not evolved. Yeah, your child is 13 years old and he can win mill. Great. Your child is 11 years old and he could throw a 90 mile per hour beater. Great. But how long is that going to sustain itself? Because if he's throwing 90 at 11, by the time he gets to 2021, he's going to have torn rotator cuffs. His career is done. And there was a study as well for baseball that said that because of the frequency and how much we are training, um, you know, our kids, especially in, in the baseball circuit, that more kids or more players are going to be burnt out of the MLB, I want to say, before the age of 30. That's crazy. Baseball is supposed to be one of those sports where you can have longevity. And they said there's going to be more and more players retiring before the age of 30. I want to say 2027, 20, if I remember correctly. I'll have to find that. But that is a, a ridiculous statistic. If you look at everything that's been happening in the women's soccer world, we have the most ACL and MCL tears ever. Ever. It's the highest percentage that we've ever had. They're dropping like flies. These injuries are not common. They've never been common. You look at your basketball players. Look how many of them are popping Achilles, popping, uh, um, you know, ACL, MCLs. It's not normal. And so I want you to imagine that if that's not normal at the professional level, and they're complaining about it at the professional level, imagine what's happening to your kids' bodies right now. I want all of you to go to um, your ortho or your. Uh, a pediatrician, your doctor, whatever. I want you to ask for an MRI and see what kind of wear and tear is truly on your kid's body. 
had one of my clients tell me, you know, he had been you know, bothering, you know, uh, ankle had been bothering him, this, that, et cetera, et cetera. And I kept trying to tell him, you need to rest. You need to rest. You need to recover. You need to take time off. And he was like, but I gotta, I gotta. And I'm like, dude, you need to slow down. Went, finally got an MRI, found out, boom, he's got to sit off, off of his ankle for six weeks. That's a month and a half. And a lot of your kids probably need a month and a half off, but they will never get a month and a half because there's going to be summer conditioning coming up, which is just going to be running. So more wear and tear. They've already been doing running. So with more high intensity stuff, where's the low intensity stuff? Where's the strengthening stuff? Where's the corrective stuff? Nothing is changing. Think about this. Your kids are still doing the same warm-ups that they've done since the 1930s, probably. Nothing has changed. And there's so many more efficient and more effective ways of training nowadays. I say all of that to say this is the youth sports industry, a billion-dollar industry that is designed to take advantage of your desire for opportunities and it will continue to do so so long as you continue to feed it so long as you continue to put money it will continue to be gluttonous and it's going to take more and more of us to be able to say no this needs to change there's no problem and i have no problem with them making money i have problems with the fact that they do not recycle the resources if you look at the Norwegian setup, if you look at the Norwegian setup, it's stated that it's stated that they recycle essentially, um, or the they 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 recycle the proceeds of sports betting and other gambling to help build facilities and fund programming. There's a multitude of different ways to offset costs. A lot of your club organizations or what have you generate three, four, five million dollars. They could offer to cover your hotel fees. They could offer to reduce team fees. They could say, hey, we're for this age group, we're gonna make sure, you know, you guys just won a national tournament. We're gonna cover all of your fees for this year. Don't worry about it. We got it. What are they doing to assist? What are they doing to help you? And that is my main issue or problem. I don't have any problem with money being made. What I have a problem is the lack of morality, the lack of business ethics. What I have a problem with is the lack of reinvestment. What are we doing better? Okay, let's hire somebody throughout the entirety of the uh, uh, and the 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 basketball setup. Okay, AAU. We're gonna hire somebody who is basically a liaison. He's going through all of your schedules and saying, your kids are playing too much. They need to sit out for two months. They did, they, they did too much, right? In Europe, they have a cap. How many, how many games they can play? Basketball as well as soccer. We don't have a cap. We're just saying, right, get out there, play. Yep, another game. Yep, another game. You got basketball kids who are playing nine games in five days. You got some of your soccer kids who are playing four or five games in two days. There's no cap. So who is marshalling these particular organizations saying, look, enough is enough. 
or this is the period that you can train and that you can play in. It's here between this time and this time. After that, that's it. There's a lot of different ways to change it. And I would love to change it. And the best way to change it is to continue to have these type of conversations. And you're only going to hear these type of conversations here on the Hyper Theory Podcast.